In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, as we begin this time of prayer, this time of reflection and conversation with you, we listen once again to these words, which we've probably all heard many times. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. They're words of great consolation. They're words of great comfort. It's always good for us to hear our Lord's promise for rest for our souls, for interior peace. But they're also words of a great challenge. Words that are in their own way very demanding. <clears throat> and what's the demanding side? The demanding side is that our Lord tells us that we should imitate him and precisely we should imitate his heart, his sacred heart. Learn from me for I am meek and humble in heart. This week the church celebrates the wonderful solemnity of the sacred heart of Jesus, which is to celebrate nothing less than the very love that God has for us. The love of God is shown in the heart of Jesus, in Jesus' love. I have a priest friend who likes to say that there's no feast in the church of the sacred brain of Jesus. Because God is love, right? God is love. He's not knowledge, although he is all-knowing. He's not power, although he is all-powerful. He's not even justice, even though he is all-just. When God reveals himself, in addition to all those other attributes, he reveals himself precisely as love. Because he reveals himself in the love that Jesus Christ has for us. Who lets his heart be opened on the cross. And so this is a great challenge, to imitate your heart, Lord, to learn from you because you are meek and humble of heart, is to try to love as you love. It's to try to, specifically, as you put it here, to have a heart like your heart, which means that we need a meek and humble heart. And what is meekness? Meekness 
is a very important virtue for our day and age, a very important virtue for each one of us. We tend to think of meekness as weakness, and they rhyme, right? Meekness, weakness. But what meekness really is, is the ability to control anger, right? The ability to confront evil. Evil always makes us angry. Evil always is a threat to us. It's always something that threatens to make us suffer or does make us suffer. And one of the natural reactions of the soul to evil is anger. Right? Anger lashes out at the source of evil and tries to defend the person from evil by destroying it. Right? Anger wants to destroy the source of suffering, the source of evil. The problem with anger, though, is that unless it's tempered by, by justice, unless it's tempered by mercy, unless it's tempered by charity, it very easily slides into being a sin. It slides into a lack of charity. It morphs into hatred. That's why anger is one of the seven deadly sins, along with pride, envy, avarice, sloth, gluttony, and lust, we find anger. And so what does meekness do? Meekness helps us to suffer evil, to suffer at the hands of injustice, without becoming evil ourselves thereby. Right? Meekness controls the anger. It limits the anger. It lets charity inform the anger. So that, it, so that the anger doesn't turn into hatred, which would be the loss of our souls. It would be to make us evil ourselves. It would be to lose charity, and charity is the life of God in us. And so, Lord, in this time when, when many people are angry, perhaps we too are angry over one thing or another, over the injustices that we see on one side or another, problems that we see are dividing us in society. For many people, this can lead to a great anger. And that anger, as, as we've seen, slides easily into hatred, slides easily into violence. And our Lord wants us to be preserved from that. Learn from me for a meek and humble of heart. To imitate the heart of our Lord, Lord, to imitate your heart, it's to do something very powerful. In the language of the New Testament, the term for the word heart is the Greek word cardia, which of course refers to the physical organ responsible for pumping blood throughout the body. But in that figurative sense, it refers to the spiritual center of the person. This is from a well-known Bible concordance describing or defining the word cardia. The center and seat of spiritual life, the soul or mind, as it is the fountain and seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, endeavors. So also in English we use the word heart, the inner man, etc. And so when our Lord 
invites us to have his heart, invites us to imitate his heart, invites us to learn from him by being meek and humble of heart, by having a heart like his, he's inviting us to something very powerful. He's saying, have my thoughts and passions and desires and appetites and affections and purposes and endeavors and have them as your own. Make the center and the seat of your spiritual life like mine. What a challenging thing to love, Lord, as you love. But our Lord expects nothing less from us. He's given us the grace to do it. Love one another as I have loved you. And Lord, where do we see what your heart is like? How do we know the model well so that we can imitate it? Well, we see our Lord's heart in a special way in the four Gospels and the Gospels' accounts of how Jesus dealt with and reacted to people while he walked this earth. The Gospels reveal the heart of Christ to us. And when we do that, when we read the Gospels, one of the central characteristics of the heart of Christ that is shown to us, that kind of jumps off the page, is our Lord's compassion. The compassion of Jesus is referred is referred to explicitly several times in the Gospel. His compassion moves him in different circumstances and in different ways. In several passages, our Lord is moved to compassion when he sees large crowds of people and sees their needs. This is from the Gospel of Mark. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. What a great scene, Lord. Perhaps we can be a character in the scene that we're a disciple on the boat with our Lord as he's crossing from one side of the lake, Tiberius, to another. The crowd is waiting for him. We see this great crowd. And we look to our Lord and we see that he's moved. We see a look of concern in his face. We see a look of empathy in his face. We see certain pain in his face. That's what compassion is, to suffer with. That's the Latin root of our word compassion. It comes from cum pati. Pati means to suffer and cum means with, to suffer with. And so when our Lord has compassion, he suffers with the people that he has compassion for. And so he looks at this crowd and he sees their directionlessness. He sees their lack of purpose. He sees their ignorance. And it moves him. He's affected by it. He's hurt by it. And that emotion of being affected by the condition of others, that compassion of our Lord, moves him to do something about it. And in this case, what he does about it is to teach them. He teaches them many things, the Gospel tells us. The solution, in this case, to their being lost is the truth. 
is the truth about themselves, the truth about sin, the truth about goodness, the truth about salvation, the truth about his Father God, the truth, Lord, about yourself, that you are the Savior, that you are the Messiah, that you are the way and the truth and the life. He teaches them many things. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, now, and forever. And so our Lord looks down from heaven with the same eyes with which he looked at this crowd. And he looks at our society and he sees that in many ways we too are directionless. We too are ignorant. We too have lost purpose and meaning and have lost a deep conviction about fundamental truths about what it means to be human, about our own dignity and the dignity of others, about our relationship with God, and about Him, about Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we ask you, Lord, look upon us as you looked upon that crowd and teach us many things. Teach us the things, Lord, that will... That will Help us in our situation of being lost, our situation of being ignorant, of being sheep without a shepherd. The Greek word used by the New Testament for compassion is very expressive. Our word compassion comes from that Latin word that we just mentioned. But the Greek word comes from a, a, a fun word to say, splagnitsomai. Splagnitsomai, which means compassion in Greek, comes from the root word splankna. And splankna means bowels, innards. And so splagnitsomai literally means in the Greek to be moved as to one's bowels. Hence to be moved with compassion or to have compassion. And so in the language of the New Testament, to have compassion is something that went you know, way deep down inside. That someone felt deep down inside of their gut. Like it was a gut feeling. It was something that reached to, the, to their physical core. And so when our Lord feels compassion, He really feels it. He feels it in His body. And He reacts to it right, with charity. Another scene, this is right after the death of John the Baptist. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. He had compassion for them. He's moved interiorly, feels in his gut the situation of the crowd, the need of the crowd for healing. And this time, in this passage, instead of teaching them, the gospel points out that Jesus heals them. He takes care of their physical infirmities. He concerns himself with their physical needs. A similar passage occurs <clears throat> right before Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes in one of those miracles to feed the crowd. 
When he saw the crowds, the Gospel of Matthew tells us, he had compassion on them. Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint on the way. And so here it's interesting, Lord, that we hear you tell us, we hear you tell your disciples about your compassion, about that experience of being moved by the situation of others. In those other passages, the gospel says, well, Jesus is moved with compassion. Here, Jesus tells us that I'm moved with compassion. I have compassion on them. And so he wants his disciples to share in his compassion. Do something about it. And we know the story that disciples counter our Lord by saying, well, we don't have enough for you know <laughs> to feed this crowd. It would take a lot of money to do so. And then Jesus responds by, Perform that great miracle. And so in all these passages, Lord, we see your compassion not just move you, right? The, the, the story doesn't end with his emotion. The story doesn't end with his pity. Our Lord doesn't feel good about himself just because he has the right emotions, right? which many of us can do these days. We can think, oh, I feel sorry for this situation. I feel sorry for that person. And then we don't do anything about it. And we think we're okay just because we have the right opinions and the right feelings about a certain situation or certain people. Our Lord's compassion, Lord, your compassion moves your heart to move your will to do something about it, to serve. And so our Lord teaches when he sees ignorance, he heals when he sees sickness, and he feeds when he sees hunger. And isn't this, Lord, precisely the path you showed us to heaven? What you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. Right? And in that, in that parable, the end of the world, when our Lord separates the sheep at his right hand, those who will enter heaven, and the goats at his left hand, those who will not enter heaven, it will be separated from God forever. What's the dividing line? The dividing line is basically awareness and response to the needs of others. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. And they say, when, Lord, did we see you? in this way, and minister to you in this way. And our Lord answers, as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And so in the only passage, really, in which our Lord says, you know, what the judgment will specifically be on, right? What's the answer going to be on that final exam of my life? It's like sometimes in college classes or in high school classes, Right, uh, the teacher will give the give the give the questions to the students. These are the questions that are going to be in the exam. Prepare yourself, and then that guides their studying. Right, I, okay, I'm going to be ready to answer this question. Well, our Lord, who is the professor of our life, 
gives us the answer to our final exam. And it's this, what you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to me. And he gives us the question ahead of time. The answer is charity. The answer is compassion. Compassion that moves us to acts of charity. One more passage where our Lord sees the needs of the crowd. Matthew. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. And so in many ways, this passage is just like the other ones we just, we just considered. Jesus sees a crowd, he sees the needs of the crowd, and he's moved with compassion. He's not indifferent to what he sees. He's not indifferent to the suffering that he sees. But in those other passages, our Lord does something directly to help the crowd. In the first case, he teaches them, and then we saw he heals the sick in the crowd, and then we saw he feeds the crowd because he sees that they're hungry. In this one, our Lord does something different. Instead of directly acting on the crowd to help them, he prays. More specifically, he asks his followers to pray. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. And so what does Jesus pray for here? He prays for you. He prays for me. He prays for people who will take their Christian vocation seriously, to work in the harvest, to help teach people how to repent from their sins, to help teach people how to live their lives well, to help teach people what they're worth in God's eyes, to help teach people the love of God for them, which forgives them and wants to lift them up and wants to give them a better life, a greater life, a life, a life of greater spiritual nobility, of greater spiritual awareness, a life of a bigger heart, a life in which we can imitate the heart of God, the sacred heart. Our Lord, Lord, you pray for me. You pray for my Christian vocation. You pray that I will be someone who works in the harvest of the world, doing your will, helping others as you help them as you walked upon this earth. Being the light of the world, instructing the ignorant. Being the salt of the earth. Feeding the hungry. Healing the wounded. Spiritually wounded, perhaps above all. Clothing the naked, giving shelter to the homeless, visiting the sick, prisoners. Lord, give me a big heart, a heart like yours. And this is one of the best compliments, I think, that we can pay to people or that we can have paid to us. That someone say of us, he has a big heart. Or she has a big heart. She's big-hearted. Because that, that compliment to have a big heart, to be big-hearted, it wraps together so many wonderful qualities that, 
we should want to have, that God wants us to have. When you say someone has a big heart, it means they're generous, it means they're compassionate, it means they're willing to help, it means they're warm and affectionate, it means you can ask them for favors, it means that they're, they're up for sacrifices, they don't worry about putting some effort into something on behalf of another. Lord, do I have a big heart? Lord, I know my heart is small, at least in certain areas, with certain people, in certain tasks. Lord, give me a bigger heart. A similar compliment, but perhaps one that is a little bit double-sided, so to speak, is all heart. Right? He's all heart, or she's all heart. And in one way, it's very good because it means you have a really big heart. But in another way, it's not too good because it can also mean that you know, you don't have much um, brains, right? That uh, he's all heart means, well, he's not much else. Um, in any event, we all have the intellect that God wants us to have. We thank him for it. We do our best with what we have. But Lord, we want to be big hearted. And if we have to be, we'll also be all heart. We want to be whatever you want. We also see miracles, Lord, in which you meet individual people and you respond to their individual problems. You remove the compassion by the sight of the individual and his or her problems. There's that leper, one of the very first miracles of our Lord. A leper approaches our Lord and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What a beautiful aspiration. Anytime, Lord, I feel my sinfulness, Anytime I know myself or someone else struggling with addiction or some attachment to sinfulness, to sin, what a wonderful aspiration to pray and to counsel others to pray. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The gospel says, Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and said to him, I do will, be thou clean. I do will. Be thou clean. Move with compassion. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Another personal miracle, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, have mercy on the son of David. The crowd sternly ordered them to be quiet, but they shouted even more loudly, Have mercy on us, Lord, Son of David. Jesus stood still and called them, saying, What do you want me to do for you? What a wonderful question to hear from our Lord. A great question to bring to our prayer, to let him ask us, What do you want me to do for you? which helps us to reflect on, on a similar question. What do I want? What do I want out of this life? What do I want to be? What do I want to be like? Who do I want to be? What am I after? Why do I get out of bed in the morning? What do you want me to do for you? How do you want me to help you? What kind of life do you want me to help you live? What a wonderful question, Lord, to hear from your lips. What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately, they regained their sight and followed him.
And so in these two miracles, we see you, Lord, move with compassion after the people in question show you their weakness. The leper approaches our Lord, breaking through the prohibition of his time to stay away from other people. He approaches our Lord and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. Look at these sores. Look at this terrible condition that I'm in. If you will, you can, you can, you can fix it. You can cure me. And the blind men shout out to our Lord, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And they respond to him, Lord, let us receive our sight. Open our eyes. And Jesus, in both cases, is moved to compassion after hearing these requests. He's moved with compassion at the sight of their misery and, and also by the fact that they show him their misery. And so we need to do the same thing with our Lord in our prayer. Lord, this is my blindness. Lord, I'm not understand, you know, I don't, I don't understand other people. I don't understand people who disagree with me. I tend to judge them. I tend to hate them. This is my blindness, Lord. Lord, this is my leprosy. This habit that I keep falling into. This waste of time. This curiosity. This intemperance, whatever. This impatience. This critical spirit. Right? This lack of charity in my thoughts. Whatever it is. Lord, this is my leprosy. If you will, you can make me clean. We go to Our Lady, Our Lady, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, is the most perfect mirror of her son's sacred heart. She, will, she, loves what, she loves what he loves, so whatever is in his heart has a reflection and is also present in her heart. So we go to her, Immaculate Heart of Mary, give us hearts after the pattern, after the model of your son's sacred heart. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.